comfortable not too comfortable we are uh, we're so glad that you're here at Creekside Church this morning I one thing I want to say to you is Easter is quickly approaching it feels weird to talk about Easter in February but it is coming and it is April 4th so we need to start talking Easter egg hunt right our Easter egg hunt is an opportunity for us as a church to gather our kids together to find Easter eggs but also to get the community here to share the gospel with them to meet people and to bring the gospel to the streets, really. Um, so what's going to happen is next week is February 22nd. We need you uh, to participate in this way. You can bring plastic eggs, empty eggs, okay, regular standard size empty eggs, and we're going to have a donation station for the Easter egg hunt right outside to the left in the uh, fellowship hall. Plastic eggs or candy from now, February 22nd, till Sunday, March 22nd, we are going to collect those things, okay? And then tomorrow morning, look for an email from me asking you to sign up, okay? To either come or both come and help on March 28th, fill those Easter eggs, and go door to door and invite these communities around us, these homes around us, these people. Um, and then on April 4th, which is our actual Easter egg hunt, to come at nine o'clock to help set up, to help get this place ready and all that and uh, have our Easter egg hunt. So look for that tomorrow. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to continue in worship. Our offering is going to come around, and if you're a visitor here this morning, this offering is not for you. You're our guest, um, but what you can do is you can look under the seat in front of you. There's a card, a visitor's card. We would love for you to fill that out, put it in the offering as it comes around, and if you need prayer this morning, we love to pray, and we want to pray for you. We believe that God answers prayers, and he is powerful, um, so take that card also and fill out the prayer section. Put it in the offering if you need prayer. Um, God, we, uh, we are here in your presence, in the presence of an almighty God. We know that you command angel armies and that you have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And so, God, we want to worship you. We want to lift your name high. God, may all worry and anger and strife and things that we struggle with in your presence and in the name of Jesus God may you break those chains Father we depend on you for everything that we have it's all yours and so I pray that as we give back to you you would find us given with cheerful and joyful hearts be praised now God faithful. Uh, we thank you through your son. You have given us life. Uh, you have given us hope. Uh, you've given us meaning. Uh, God, we pray this morning as we look at Mark and this story in Mark, God, that you would uh, just remind us to sit at your feet, that you would remind us to worship you, that you remind us just, just to be with you, to spend time with you. 
Uh, God, we pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts, that you would challenge our minds and our hearts and our souls, and, and God, just do a work uh, here this morning and in our lives. We pray it and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat, and uh, if you would, you can turn to Mark chapter 14. <clears throat> Mark chapter 14. What I love about going through the Gospel of Mark and any of the Gospels is they obviously point us to Jesus. They obviously share the story of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, the story of his life, his death, and resurrection. But what I love as we look at these stories, we see people in relationship with Jesus. And I think that tells us a lot as we seek a relationship with Jesus, to be able to look through the Gospels and see how people have worshipped, how people have followed, how people have served, I think can speak volumes to us in our lives and in our pursuit of him. Uh, and this is one of those stories. As we look at the story of Mark chapter 14 today, I'm reminded of really what, what's most important. What, what really matters in my life? What I should seek as a follower and a worshiper of Jesus. So let's read uh, this in, in Mark chapter 14 together. It says this, Now the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man named, known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I love this story, and it's a story, and as we look at it closer, if you would turn to the gospel of Matthew and that of John, in Matthew chapter 26 and John chapter 12, you're going to see a very similar story. In fact, it's the same story. Now, John's version is just a little different, and we'll talk about some of those differences as we go along. But in here, we see some key characters that are going to come into play. And so we're going to see him, although it doesn't necessarily mention anybody by name, the Gospel of John does, and we'll talk about those as we go. So Mark chapter 14, verse 1, says this. It says, Now the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread were only two days away. So here's what's going on. Remember, we are in the final week of Jesus' life. In fact, at this point, we are in the final days of Jesus' life. And this last week uh, is... You know, we're in Mark chapter 14, and Mark is only 16 chapters long. We're going to spend seven weeks going over these final days of Jesus' life, leading all the way up to his death and ultimately his resurrection as well. So we spend a lot of time here, and there's a lot packed in here. So understand, we're in the final days. Uh, it was not only just a few days before that Jesus came in riding on a donkey, being celebrated and hailed as king, and yet a week later, 
he's crucified. So obviously in these final days, a lot takes place. And so here we are uh, celebrating, getting ready to celebrate the Passover. And if you don't know what the Passover is, the Passover is simply a time uh, in the history of the nation of Israel, if you would read back at the story of their time of captivity with Egypt, it is a time they experience freedom from Egypt, from being slaves of Egypt. And so what had happened is, is that uh, God uh, had passed over them and their firstborn, and he didn't with Egypt. And what subs- uh, happens directly after that is they are freed from the captivity of Egypt. So year after year, they celebrate. They have this feast to remember the Passover. And it's kind of, if you would look in the Gospel of John, you can see in John chapter 2, John chapter 6, and John chapter 12, during the life of Jesus, during his ministry, there were three different Passovers that take place. And it's how scholars kind of dictate and, and say, okay, the life and the ministry, or rather the ministry of Jesus, took place of about over a three-year period. And that's how they mark it, looking at these different Passovers. So that's what's taking place. They're getting ready for this great feast, this Passover. And, said, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly, I like that, sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. So they want to arrest him. At this point, remember, he came in riding on that donkey, being heralded as king, and now they're looking for some way to, to not only arrest, but ultimately kill Jesus. But they understand with this festivity, with all that's going on, it's going to be very difficult because there are more people around. And they're scared at this point, if we try to arrest him, if we try to haul him in, there may be an uprising in his favor. So they're being very careful in how they go about arresting Jesus. But that is their goal, and that's what they're looking to do. Uh, But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Uh, Verse uh, 3, while he was in Bethany. Okay, so here's where we are. Location-wise, we are in Bethany. Now, Bethany shows up quite a bit. Especially in the last week of Jesus, it seems that Jesus is kind of going back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany, and he's spending a lot of time. You'll know that uh, Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem, so it's a fairly easy walk as they would go back and forth uh, from Jerusalem. Also, what took place in Bethany, and, and now that we're back here, you will, if you would look and read in John chapter 11, you're going to read about the story of Lazarus. And the story of Lazarus, Lazarus in John chapter 11 is a story of, of a guy that died. Jesus shows up a few days later, and what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And so the story in Bethany, or the story in John chapter 11, takes place in this little village called Bethany. And some characters in that story are going to show up here again in Mark chapter 14. And why we don't see names... If you look in Matthew or in John chapter 12, you're going to see this same story, right? The same event, the same timeline falls into place, and it's how we know, along with a few other things, that it's essentially the same story is taking place. And in that story, Lazarus again shows up. In that story are Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha as well. And so I love the story of Lazarus. I love the story of what takes place here because I think the story of Lazarus is a picture of what God has done for every single one of us spiritually. That we were once dead in our sin, once dead in our transgressions and trespasses, and yet Jesus has raised us from the dead. 
And so I always love this story of Lazarus. Why? It's an awesome story of God physically raising a man from dead to life. It's what he has done for us that have known and trust in Jesus. It's what he's done for us spiritually. Taking something that was dead and making it alive. Isn't that an awesome thing? And so I, I love the story of Lazarus. And so we see Lazarus uh, show up in this story once again. Uh, continuing on in verse 3. It says, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Simon the leper. Now, he's only mentioned here and in the same account in Matthew 26, so we don't know a lot about him. Now, I'm guessing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm guessing that he's probably not currently with leprosy. I I don't know if I'd go around using uh, someone's ailment in how I describe somebody, right? You know, hey, here's Bob the cross-eyed, or something like that. That's probably not one, I got many other names for you guys. Uh, But that's probably not something uh, we're going to do, right? Now, in reading the commentaries and studying it, most people believe that Simon is a guy probably at one time that had leprosy. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see many stories of Jesus healing people with leprosy. And so I like this story, and I like seeing Simon the leper. Because it it takes me back to some other people that Jesus has healed of leprosy. You'll think of the story of the ten lepers, right? If you've heard this story, Jesus heals those ten lepers. You've heard it? And how many of those lepers came back? One. One of the ten returned. Now there's some other illustration that Jesus is trying to make uh, in that story about the nation of Israel, but what what a picture. Jesus heals ten people restores their life, heals them from sickness and disease, and only one is grateful enough to return and thank him. And so I love the picture that we see of Simon the leper here, because my guess and what most people think is this was a guy who was probably healed by Jesus. And we see his probably his heart here, right? His gratefulness. And as you read in John chapter 12, that this really was a celebration. It was a a dinner in the honor of Jesus, celebrating Jesus. And so I love this picture of a guy, Simon the leper, who has most likely been healed by Jesus. And what does he do? He throws a party for Jesus. He invites other people to come see this Jesus, right, who has healed him. This should be our response, because we too I mean, like Simon the leper, like Lazarus who's been raised from dead to life, like a leper who has been healed of our leprous sin, we too should be grateful for what Jesus has done for us. And what Jesus has done, it should cause us to want to tell others about him, right? It should cause us to want to invite others to meet this Jesus, to meet this great healer, the one that can give us life, that can take us from death to life. And this is who Jesus is. And so I, I just love just reading that little bit. He's only mentioned here, but Simon the leper, right? Most likely a guy who had experienced this, this healing power of Jesus. So this leads us into this story. And the next character who I think, other than Jesus being the obvious hero of the story, th- this woman is the hero of this story. So much so that at the end of this section, Jesus goes on to say, when the gospel is preached, she is going to be talked about forever. And here we are, right, some 2,000 years later, talking about this story. So at the end of verse 3, it says, A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. 
she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now, if you would read, and here's where we would go back to Matthew 26, we look at Mark 14, and we look at John chapter 12, and the three accounts. Now, what is interesting looking at these three accounts is Matthew and Mark very similar to each other, but John's a little different. And while some people try to take stories, so if you, you'll see the same story in several different Gospels, and some people try to take those stories and discredit the Bible. Because of these stories that are taking place, oh, well, look, there's a discrepancy in this story to that story. And as you look at this story, and you, specifically if you looked at John chapter 12 and compare it to Matthew 26 and Mark 14, you would see, okay, that, that looks a little different. Okay, there's some changes that are taking place. Now, now what I would lead you and, and, and tell you to, to kind of think about is this idea that there are three different people telling the same story. Three different eyewitness accounts of people who saw the story but maybe even they saw other aspects of the story somebody else didn't, right? And maybe you've experienced that in your own life. I, my dad and I uh, were telling a story recently, and it's okay if I share this story. So my, my dad and I were tell, telling a story recently, and uh, I sell real estate, as do my dad and my sister. And this was about six years ago. My sister had had a brain aneurysm at the time, and so didn't have great memory, couldn't drive around, and both of us had this house listed together. And so what we do on Wednesdays, is uh, we do something called Realtor Tour, and we put new listings on so other realtors can come through and see it. So my sister and I had it listed together, and I did the first hour, 10 to 11, but then my dad had to give her a ride there and then pick her up afterwards uh, because she couldn't yet drive. So I told her when we were doing this, as soon as I left, I'm like, all right, Katie, I have one job for you. This lady does not have any kids, but she's got a cat, and she loves this cat, okay? Absolutely loves and adores this cat. So I said, you, she gave me one thing that we cannot do. We cannot let the cat out. Okay, so 10 to 11, I mean, I'm, I, I'm there the whole time as Riller's coming in. I'm shooing this cat back and forth. This cat is not getting out. Okay, so I leave at 11. I get a call about 11.10. Uh, Kyle, uh, I hate to tell you this, but the cat got out. You, know, you have one job, don't let the cat out. Okay, well, the cat got out. So then I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, what am I going to do? I call my dad. I'm like, Dad. You and Katie, I don't care what you do, but you're not leaving that place until that cat gets back in the house, all right? Now, if you know my dad at all, my dad does not uh, like animals. In fact, when we were a kid, and this is a true story, instead of, you know, no, most people swerve away from cats and animals. Well, he would swerve towards them to try to hit them. Okay, so he doesn't have a great fond uh, love of cat uh, or any animal. So there's these cats, uh, there's this cat we're trying to track down. So I'm like, Dad, you got to find that cat. So he, he goes off, and he uh, begins to search for this cat. And, well, he finds the cat. Uh, this is probably about 12, 15 now. He finds the cat two houses down. Now, he doesn't love cat. He sees it under something, goes, grabs it, you know, hissing and clawing, throwing everything at him. So he just goes over, tosses the cat in. My sister calls me, Kyle, we found the cat. Cat's fine. Well, I get a call about four hours later, uh, Kyle. Yeah, this is Stephanie, and uh, there's a cat in my house that's not mine. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, you know... The end, the story worked out, you know, other than the cat peeing all over the place and scratching up some furniture, the real cat made it back. Now, uh, a lot of lessons in that, but, but my, my dad and I were telling this story about two weeks ago uh, to some people, and we both were telling it just a little differently, right? A little different aspect, a little different perspective of the story. Now, I encountered, and I had this encounter with the seller, right, who loved this cat, didn't want to get the cat out. My dad had the actual encounter with the cat who's trying to kill him, right? 
And my sister had the encounter of letting the cat out. Each of us, when we told the story, told a little differently. A little different perspective of the same story. The cat got out, the wrong cat got in the house, we know the whole story, but each of us from a little different perspective. And I think many of the Gospels are exactly the same. As you read through it, remember this is, okay, we got you know, Matthew looking at it here, we got John looking at it here, and these guys recalling the same story, but from a little different perspective, right? And so here's the story, if you read it in Mark and you read it in Matthew, it's one way, but John gives a little more detail. And hey, here, Lazarus is here. Mary and Martha are here. In fact, while Mark and Matthew don't tell us who this woman was, John tells us it was Mary. And while Matthew and Mark both tell us that this alabaster jar, this perfume, was dumped on Jesus' head, John says that Jesus, or Mary used her hair and wiped this perfume off her feet. Well, John, his perspective and his angle is probably a little different. I like to picture it in such a way is that Mary takes this jar of perfume. And most likely what she did is she broke it open and began to pour it over the head of Jesus. And get this great picture. Here, here is this woman who her, her act of worship is to dump this perfume. And as we read and we saw the verse, over a year's wages a perfume imported from India, a perfume that uh, was used to anoint kings. Here she uses this perfume and she dumps it over the head of Jesus. And you can most likely picture it that as it goes down his hair and his beard, it probably begins to drip on his feet and fall to the floor as she anoints Jesus. And so why Matthew and Mark, they see it and they, and they picture it and they, yeah, yeah, you know, dumped it over her head. John, who speaks of Mary several times, notices something else. That as it begins to probably drip on to his feet, Mary gets onto the floor, sits at his feet, undoes her hair, and begins this incredible act of worship. And begins to clean his feet with this expensive, beautiful perfume. Right? What, what, what a picture that is. What a, what a beautiful scene uh, is painted here. And when we see Mary many times, this is what she is. This is what she does. You look in Luke chapter 10, there's the story of, of Mary and Martha. You're probably familiar with it. They're serving, right? And Mary, or Martha's in the kitchen getting everything ready, and Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And Martha complains, what are you doing? You know, Jesus, tell her to get in here and help me. But what does Jesus say? No, no, she's doing what is best. She's sitting with me. She's with me. The best thing that we can do is not to serve Jesus, but to be with him, to worship him. Right? Nick, the last two weeks, has talked about we should long for the return of Jesus. Why? So we can be with him. Paul says it's better that I die. Why? So he can be with him. Right? It's better to be with Jesus. And Mary gives us this great picture. And so Luke chapter 10, we see it. Uh, Mary at the feet of Jesus. John chapter 11, that story I told you about Lazarus. Lazarus dies. Jesus, a couple days later, shows up and asks for Mary. Mary comes out and meets him. And what is she? the first thing she does? She throws herself at the feet of Jesus. And she begins to cry. She begins to weep. And again, we get this picture 
of where we should be, right? In a time of worship, in a time of pain, in a time of suffering at the feet of Jesus. And here again, Mark 14, Matthew 26, John 12, where is she once again? She's at the feet of Jesus. What a picture. And this time, her act of worship is to take this great gift that she has, right? We'll find out a little more about it a little on, uh, a little while on. But she takes this great gift, right, this great perfume, and dumps it on Jesus. And then as John tells us, she then undoes her hair and begins to clean the feet of Jesus. Now, a couple things on that. Uh, in this day... Women, when they were little girls, their hair would be down, it'd be flowing, it'd be, you know, they were wild and crazy like little girls are. But as they became a woman, they would put their hair up, and they would leave their hair up until their first time, their first night with their husband. And then they would let their hair back down. See, hair was a woman's glory, as, as Paul even talked about. And so here is this picture of Mary letting her hair down at the feet of her Savior, at the feet of the one she loves more than anyone. And there she is, cleaning her, his feet with this perfume and her hair. And they would also say that at, at, during those days, it was the, the lowest person in the household, the slave of the household, or whoever was the lowest one in the household that would clean the feet. Now, you know, in those days, they, would, they were all sandals, open-faced sandals. You would walk around. If you've ever been to Emmanuel Mission, all right, I've been on the mission down there probably six or seven times, and it's nasty, dirty, you know, that, that dirt and that dust gets caked. Well, get that image in your head of these guys are walking around, walking for miles in these sandals, and all this dirt and dust and everything else kind of caked on their feet. And so the lowest person in whatever the household would be would come along and they would wash, they would wash, wash, they would wash their feet. They would wash, they would wash their feet, okay? And this is the position that Mary is taking. She is coming as a servant, worshiping Jesus, unraveling her hair and washing the Savior's feet. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that such an incredible picture that Mary gives us? taking the place of a servant, letting her hair down, taking this incredible gift that's worth over a year's wages and anointing Jesus with it. Uh, there are few better pictures in all of the Bible of worship than what Mary shows us in this portion. What a heart. What a heart. What a, what a place that we, too, want to be. It continues on uh, in verse 4. Some of those present were saying... Indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. So there's a problem. Now again, Matthew tells us much the same thing. But if you go read the Gospel of John, there's one disciple that stands out a little bit from the rest of them, right? And that's Judas. Judas standing out a little more than these other ones. Now, both Matthew and Mark mentioned, hey, there's several of these disciples. But you're going to see right after this portion, go read verses 10 and 11. And it's going to say, Judas went off and went to betray Jesus. So right after this takes place. So I think what's happening, most likely, as we bring the three stories together, is that Judas is the one kind of talking about it. And maybe a couple others saying, oh, you know what? He's got a point here. See, from, 
from an external point of view, I mean, look at it this way. Judas is saying we should take, remember, this is a year's wages, right? We should take this money and we should sell it and give it to the poor. Well, doesn't that seem like a good thing? Instead of just dumping it on somebody, right? To take it and give it to the poor. So from an external perspective, it seems, yeah, he, you know, he might be on to something here. Why, why are we wasting it and dumping it? Let's go sell it. We've got a year's wages. We can give it to the poor. And so from an external perspective, yeah, it looks like, okay, he's right on. But when we examine the heart of Judas and also the heart of Mary, Mary's doing what's best, right? Mary is with Jesus. Mary is worshiping Jesus. Mary is giving this incredible gift to the Savior. And, and Judas here, what's he want? Well, I mean, he's, and we'll find out that basically he steals, right? He takes, he, he has no care for the poor. His care is only for himself. But the lesson of Judas, I think, can be a good lesson for all of us, that sometimes our greatest strengths that we have can be the very area we fall. You look at the story of Solomon. Solomon was a guy who was wiser than anyone who lived, and yet it was foolishness was his downfall. Look at the story of David. David was a man who was considered more passionate than anybody who had ever lived. He had a heart after God's after God's own heart, and yet he committed adultery and he murdered. You look at the story of Peter, right? Is there anybody more bold than Peter? Anybody who was more willing to step out, say, you know what, I'll step out of the boat, I, you know, I'll walk on water, right? I'll, st- I'll step up for Jesus, right? He'll cut that guy's ear off. He'll, he was willing to be bold, and yet he was the one who denied Jesus. See, oftentimes, our greatest strengths, can be the area where the enemy attacks us most. For Judas, he was the keeper of the money, right? He took care of the money. He was the one that essentially, you know, he got his hands in on it. Now, Judas is a little different, we know, because from the story of guys like David and Solomon and Peter, these were good guys, guys who loved God, who made a mistake. The story of Judas is not one who was a good guy, right, that just made a mistake. The story of Judas is one who was, once he was doing something in secret, and now that which was secret had become public. So Judas making this, I, I know people like this in my own life, where, you know what, in the surface they kind of come across as a good guy, they did things, right, they tried to help, but in the end, they at the time were doing things in secret that eventually came to light. I think of one person in particular, uh, he, he was instrumental of the year I came to Christ. I was at a camp, and he was there helping at the camp. Well, the guy now uh, is still in prison, been in prison for a very long time. And what had happened was, I'm not going to go into the story, but what he had been doing, even at the time of this camp, eventually came to light. And he spent many, many years in prison now because of his actions. Right? That which was done in secret, much like what Judas had done, had now become public. Verses 6 through 9 says this, Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. 
wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What a thing she's done, right? What an incredible thing. Leave her alone. She's done an incredible thing. Here is Judas, the guy who ended up betraying Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. They say today that'd probably be equivalent to a third or a fourth of a year's wages. I looked up the average salary uh, in Iowa right now. is The median income is about 40, 41, 42,000, somewhere in that ballpark. So you see Judas really essentially for about $13,000 betrayed the Savior of the world. And then you get the picture of Mary, this beautiful thing she had done, this perfume. Well, a year's wages. I mean, imagine that gift. That's like 40-some thousand dollars, bottle of perfume. Now, I only ever used Tommy Hilfiger, and that was like 40 bucks or something. But imagine this beautiful gift, $40,000 bottle of perfume. And she pours it on the Savior. She says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. Now Matthew and Mark and, and even John, they all point us to the fact that while Jesus had been telling his disciples, hey, listen, I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to die. They always seemed not to get it, didn't they? What are you talking about? Yeah, you know, we're going, we're going to reign. We've just seen you come in on this donkey. You're going to be king. And so they had this picture in their mind that Jesus is coming to reign. But to me, it's like Mary understood. Mary got it when the disciples didn't. Jesus, he was getting ready to die. And both Matthew, Mark, and John all point out that this incredible act of worship that she had done was really preparing his body for burial. It was preparing his body for this death he was about to face, going to the cross, being crucified for her, for them, for us. Leave her alone. What an incredible thing she has done for us. And so we want to be reminded here this morning of this incredible act that Mary has done, right? That she knew the best thing that we could do is simply be with Jesus. Should we go out and serve? Should we go out and feed the, the, the poor and help those in need? Absolutely. But you know where that happens? It happens when we worship Jesus. It happens when we sit at his feet. It happens when our love for him grows in such a way that our response can't help but be, you know what, I want to go help people. I want to go tell other people about him. I want to invite them in so they too can hear the message of Jesus. So they too can be like Lazarus who was dead, now made alive. People need to hear it. People in need need to be helped. But for us who love Jesus... We want to be motivated by his great love and his great thing he has done for us. And it happens when we worship him, when we sit at his feet, when we fall madly in love with him, our heart's response is, you know what, I can't help but go do these things. There is nothing better we can do than to sit at his feet. There is nothing better we can do than to worship him. May may that be a reminder for all of us. As I, I look at the story of Mary, as we all look at the story of Mary, May we, may we be so motivated by love, by love of the Savior, that that's our heart response. Go and serve. Go and tell others. Go and do these things. Jesus is telling them, not, not don't go, you know, hey, we're going to always have the poor. Jesus says it. But his point is, I'm only here for a little while. First and foremost, be with me. The poor you will always have. We live in a broken and a hurt and a dying world. 
It's why, as Nick talked about the last two weeks, we long for Jesus to come back. Because until Jesus comes back, we are going to live in this broken, hurting, and dying world. And the poor, right? Any politician can come along and tell you he's going to do something. But as long as we live in a broken and dying world, the poor will always be among us. The broken will always be among us. There will always be a need to help those, help those in need. And we would be motivated. The more we are with Jesus, the more we fall in love, the more we worship him, the more we're going to be motivated to help those who are in need. So may we, first and foremost, worship the Savior. May we have a heart like Mary. Her greatest gift that she had, she gave it to him. Her response was to go to, her, go to his feet, to serve him, to worship him. That should be our primary response to Jesus and what he has done. Like Simon the leper, who most likely healed of his leprous, we too healed of our leprous sin. Like, like Lazarus, who was raised in his death, raised to life, we too, spiritually dead, made alive in Christ. It should cause us to want to worship him, shouldn't it? This morning, uh, as we continue here, we have the bread and juice. And we remember this incredible thing that Jesus has done for us. If you would read a few verses down, you're going to see uh, in verse 17, it says, When the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened with the one who they had said, surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, the one who dips bread in the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as written about him. Right now, once again, telling his disciples he's about to die. But woe is the time who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not even been here. Talking about Lazarus. Or, sorry, talking about Judas. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. When he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink it again, the fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So here he is at the Last Supper, giving us this picture, giving us this reminder in the bread and the juice of what he is about to do. This new covenant, this new covenant through his blood that we, once dead, can be made alive in Jesus. And so as we seek to worship him, and as we seek to worship him even this morning, we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the juice and remember that we too, once like Lazarus, once dead, have been made alive. Forgiven our sins because, because Jesus has died for us. Because Jesus went to the cross for us. Because Jesus took our sin, took all, all, all our transgressions and trespasses upon himself on the cross. We have been given new life, a new covenant through his blood. And it gives us a lot of reason to worship, doesn't it? It should motivate us beyond anything because of what he has done for us. So this morning, and as we leave here, uh, be motivated by that. Be motivated by what he's done for us. May we be worshipers like Mary, that because of this great thing he's done for us, and we can't help but sit at his feet. We can't help but serve him. We can't help but want to spend time with him. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for Jesus. God, help us and stir in our hearts to have a heart like Mary. God, who, great, who gave her greatest gift to Jesus, who, who threw herself at the feet of Jesus, who wanted nothing more but to be with Jesus. God, we want that kind of heart condition, that kind of love for our Savior. God, this morning as we remember Jesus and this incredible thing that he has done, that that what was once dead has been made alive. And it's all because of Jesus. So we remember the bread, his body that was broken. We remember the blood, the blood of the new covenant. By his blood that was spilled for me, I am alive. I am made new. I have new life in Jesus. So God, this morning, motivate us by your great love for us. God, may this morning and as we leave here, may we just want to seek to worship you, to sit at your feet, to serve you, to give our greatest gifts to you. I thank you for Jesus, this great gift. It's in his name we pray. Amen. such an incredible thing for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he has taken us, those of us, we were dead. He has made us alive. God, help us to be like Mary. And because of this great thing and because you have loved us, we can't help but sit at your feet. We can't help but worship you. We can't help but give you our best our best gifts. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. May we, as we leave here and with our lives, seek to worship him above all, to worship him. We pray it and we ask it in the name of Jesus. 